Welcome everyone. My name is Minou Shafiq and I'm the Director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I wanted to welcome you to today's event on financing for development. We're very lucky to have Suma Chakrabarti, the President of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, here to speak to us on the topic of financing for development five years on from Addis. He uh, is a well-known figure in international development and prior to his role at the EBRD, had a distinguished career in the UK civil service, including as permanent secretary at the Department for International Development, where I had the pleasure of working with him. We're also very, very fortunate to have Amina Mohammed, the deputy secretary general of the United Nations and chair of the UN Sustainable Development Group. Before that role, she was Nigeria's minister of the environment and she's played a key role in the creation of the Sustainable Development Goals and now in their implementation. So Suma has been in his final weeks uh, before he leaves the EBRD reflecting on a broad array of issues. And today he's going to share his reflections on where we are on finance for development five years on after Addis. I'll turn to Suma first and then ask Amina to react and then we will open up conversation for questions. Suma, over to you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Manoush. Uh, um, I'm hoping to speak for about 15 minutes plus, but uh, really wanting to get to the questions and to hear from Amina as well. Back in 2015, the world set itself a truly remarkable, comprehensive and universal agenda in the form of the Sustainable Development Goals. And I'm absolutely delighted to be sharing a virtual stage with UN Deputy Secretary General Amina Mohammed who played an instrumental part in that agreement. But we were, we were falling collectively short, in my view, on the delivery of the SDGs even before the COVID-19 crisis. And that's why the UN Secretary General had already called for a decade of action at the start of this year. The world will actually now, in my view, be even further off track once the crisis is over. And although they're further away, the achievement of the SDGs has never, ever been more important or necessary. Because the stark reality is that the climate emergency is frightening, it's urgent, and a year of lower emissions isn't going to make a difference without a decisive turn to a low carbon future. There's also acute inequality between and amongst nations that's been growing for a generation. And failure, I think, to address the multiple systemic causes will now undermine confidence in both democracy and politics, not to mention actually also stifling and squandering human potential. And of course, there's also the need to redress the historic imbalances in power between genders, between races. That's fundamental to creating a global society that supports and nurtures the talents of each for the benefit of all. But all of this was known before the crisis. But what we were doing at best, at least in my view, was too little and too late. That's got to change. Now, I think crises create chaos, of course, but they can also galvanize. They remind people of what they really value. They jolt us as citizens, institutions, and they jolt leaders as well out of complacency. So the theme of what I'm going to talk about today is that diagnosing the problem isn't really enough, nor is it, frankly, being an armchair critic. The response has to be about action. Now, my proposition is that we already know, for the most part, the answer. The answer is the Addis Ababa agenda, agreed by the international community back in 2015. That gives us a roadmap. We just need now to know how to read that roadmap 
And once we've read it, we need to drive forward a determination with purpose. Now, I think some might think that the Addis agenda has been tried and it's failed. The truth, in my view, is it's never really been fully tried. And that's why the centerpiece of the Secretary General's follow-up action to the high-level event on financing for development in the era of coronavirus and beyond is still that Addis agenda. So let me share three reflections drawn from my experience in development, in government, and also now for the last eight years as head of the EBRD, a multilateral development bank. The first reflection is a universal agenda needs to be owned universally. As SDGs are universal in their application, they're comprehensive in their coverage, but that has some implications. It means that development isn't something that happens to other people. The need for a decent job, for effective infrastructure, for consistent and constant access to energy, for good education, that's relevant across the globe. Frankly, whether you're in Ankara, Accra, or even Annapolis. The often touted tension that we hear about between, let's say, self-interest and global interest is also, in my view, a red herring. COVID-19 has signaled very clearly the interconnectedness of the world and the mutual dependence of the human race. I think one very strong lesson that's been emerging from this uh, is that the global society is only as strong as its weakest link. The other part of this story, of course, is that weakest link can be anywhere. Now, I think the collective will, the keys of leadership, that's become also very obvious, very essential to achieving progress. I think without solidarity, without trust, without widespread commitment to the common good, the SDGs will not be achieved. So the world needs a vibrant multilateral cooperation, shared vision. I don't think it's an optional extra because the achievement of the SDGs at the end of the day is actually existential. Now, my second reflection is that there is no silver bullet. Achieving the SDGs isn't easy. We knew that. I think the spirit of Addis was first captured in that uh, famous World Bank paper, which uh, had that rather catchy phrase for the transformation of billions to trillions. Now, that slogan can sound quite simple, the substitution of just two letters. But multiplying anything, especially money, frankly, by a thousand isn't straightforward and certainly can't be achieved by just one actor alone. And that's the true message of Addis. Addis recognised that countries want and need to be the prime movers, the prime drivers of their own destiny. It's only through supporting an economy that creates the conditions for self-sustaining growth that the resources for the SDGs can actually be achieved. And that means putting in place the right policies in all their aspects, whether it's rule of law, transparent, predictable governance, good taxation systems, probity, effectiveness in public administration. It's actually action by countries themselves that's going to unlock financing from multiple sources, whether it's private financing, official uh, development assistance, and countries' own resources, thereby paving the way to progress towards the SDGs. But governments don't act in a vacuum, of course. The private sector is absolutely key. Within countries, financial systems need to be nurtured to support productive investment. Internationally, we need a private sector that needs to respond when the conditions are in place. And too often we see countries that try to do the right thing, only to find that financiers prefer, frankly, the comfort of familiarity to the potential greater rewards of learning about new markets and experimentation. I think private capital needs to recognize and it needs to be encouraged to recognize that opportunities that already exist. Reform isn't just its own reward. It needs to 
drag in private sector financing. International assistance is also needed, whether for supporting the poorest, providing the uh, global public goods on which all people rely, or simply to address systematic market failures. And the system of international economic governance, I think, also has to be redesigned to operate for the benefit of all countries. We know that trade has been the main engine of prosperity since the Stone Age. Uh, In the modern world, huge potential for trade to raise incomes, to increase resilience, but that can only be fully realized if the trade is rules-based and fundamentally fair. We also need better and stronger rules to fully realize the potential opportunities created by the new digital technology to support innovation, promote competition, and we're also addressing challenges such as those posed by what I would call the divorce between profit generation and taxation. These new challenges are exacerbated by, I'm afraid, the old challenges that we knew about, tax secrecy, arcane accounting practices. So a universal agenda needs global institutions in which the voice of all are being heard and all are influential. No country, no region, no continent has a monopoly on wisdom, nor is it beyond critique. That, in a nutshell, was what the Addis Agenda was all about. Domestic reform, catalyzing private flows, generating tax revenues to support public investment of all kinds in an international system where institutions are designed to foster global cooperation and international fairness. And beyond the economic and political, Addis had the prescience, I think, to recognize that prosperity is rooted in practically seeing the vital importance of data collection as well to drive better decision-making. It had that prescience to understand the systemic need to skill nations and populations so they could realize the potential of science, of technology, and innovation. And that brings me to my third reflection. The multilateral development banks, of which EBID is a part, must form a system that is much more than the sum of the parts. On the face of it, MDBs are a small part of the total solution. Our annual lending is only a fraction of a single trillion, many billions, of course. It is, of course, much more complicated than that. Just take the EBID as an example. Our investments, I believe, are strategic. They're designed to support systemic change, like throwing a stone into a pool. Yes, the ripples can spread wide and far. Our work is focused on the key objectives of the SDG agenda. In the EBRD now, nearly half of our investments support the green agenda. Uh, Most of it, unusually, through the private sector, and the vast majority is truly climate finance. Our private sector, our practical approach to increasing the inclusion of underserved groups, reducing inequality, that's also growing all the time. And our activity actually reaches parts others don't. For the EBRD, we work at the municipal level, we work in local currency lending, we're trying to develop local capital markets. That's all groundbreaking. Also, again, recognized at Addis. Our policy work directly actually supports conditions which should lead to private sector development. We now have 50 offices uh, across our 38 economies where we operate. We have a deep understanding, I think, of the challenges in private sector development. And we've got credibility with governments. Our policy advice is actually rooted in practicality, and it will have real impact. It's also supported by a very thorough knowledge of the political economy of countries. That's a a unique consequence of our mandate that demands that the bank takes into account the political aspects of our work. And I think the result, therefore, is it has an impact beyond just finance. 
and our coverage these days straddles the income spectrum, addressing needs in low, middle-income countries, and ignores, I think, what I see as, at least as a false assumption of a zero-sum game between different types of countries. But there are key ways in which the power of this MDB system is underexploited. First of all, there's a failure to understand that MDBs are complements. We're not substitutes. We have different and complementary skills. That's been the successive lesson of uh, EBRD's expansions, where our entry into new markets has uncovered new unmet demands, and in fact, has led to the universe of possible projects being increased for everyone. Some shareholders, including, uh, of course, the G20 Eminent Persons Group, have called on the MDBs to act as a system. But a key restriction on this is that we've all inherited a rigidity of a system that has been organized uh, by geography. The world, I think, can't afford for scarce skills to be artificially confined to one part of the world or another. So I've long advocated a skills-based approach to organizing the system. I think now is the time for a bold approach to op optimize the impact of the system. This approach would, I think, better mirror the myriad of technical expertise and competences that are needed to actually deliver the SDGs. I think that need for this joined-up thinking is clearest in Africa. One of the, on the one hand, Africa sees the greatest needs and has the greatest distance to go to reach the SDGs. On the other hand, Africa is a vibrant, youthful continent, which I think stands on the cusp of real and lasting progress. I think a fully effective MDB system would support the private sector development essential to realizing that opportunity by deploying the skills of all its component parts to seize the moment in Africa. Now, shareholders, we provide, uh, they provide public money for MDBs, both as capital and grant resources. Those resources are scarce and politically sensitive. So a natural result is that shareholders want safeguards of multiple sorts in place, environmental, integrity, tax responsibility, open procurement. These are all laudable. They're all necessary. But put together, they can actually make the system risk averse and they can raise the cost of doing business with multilateral banks. I think they both reduce the impact of the multilateral banks. So in the face of the scale of the challenges the world now faces to achieve the SDGs, I think it's worth exploring whether the balance has been right between safeguard and risk. This isn't a call, I can assure you, for a race to the bottom in standards. It's to see those standards implemented intelligently to support countries and clients in raising their own standards. I think things will sometimes go wrong, but when they do, we need to learn lessons. And it shouldn't uh, be the heads of MDBs or politicians that are deterred from action by the tyranny of bad newspaper headlines. Perfection in development is rare. If the bar is zero tolerance for mistakes, it's going to be very hard work to stand still. We've got to be both brave as well as accountable. Finally, let me just say, for all the other things we bring to the system, finance remains a central part of what the MDBs can bring to support the achievement of the SDGs. I think we're going to need far more imagination to increase and enhance the potential of the MDBs to do more with what they have. And I think there are a range of possibilities, quite exciting possibilities. First one, we should remove the artificial, artificial constraints. The MDBs have excessively conservative capital policies by statute. Further, shareholders actually demand that this conservatism is reinforced. 
the imperative of avoiding a risk of a call for additional capital resources inhibits actually what the MDBs can do. So at a minimum, I think we could move to modern capital management and base our approaches on risk-weighted capital rather than nominal. For the EBRD, actually, that would free up another 2 billion euros in lending every year. The second thing we could do is we should move to what I would call smart leverage. Our greatest impact comes through the capital we provide to our partner banks, which they can on-lend multiple times. When we loosen the capital constraints of partner banks through either the provision of capital or capital relief through guarantees, the impact would be enhanced many times over. In fact, the scope to enhance this through blending with additional resources from donors, leading to more and better impact in countries. The third uh, option here as well is that we should become even more serious about mobilization. In fact, I don't think it's an option. It's a must. This is already top of our agenda and is a key part of what the EBRD does. But we should challenge ourselves to do more with new investors looking for impact, with new instruments such as thematic funds, with new uses of old instruments like guarantees. And of course, we shouldn't reject our oldest friend in scaling up MDB financing, which is a capital increase. It's easy to overlook the obvious. The MDBs deliver tremendous value for money, in my view. Increasing capital across the system would increase the impact in a very cost-effective manner. So now is the time for looking for real impact on the ground, not worrying about putting a national flag on it. So in conclusion, my message is very simple. The SDGs have got to be achieved. Addis gave us the tools. Five years on from Addis, I think we're in serious danger of failing to get the job done. If we want to ensure that Addis 2015 is not a tombstone for effective multilateralism, then we need to take its logic to the next level, especially now in the era of COVID-19. We have the tools in our Financing for Development toolbox. I think we need decisive leadership to use them. And we need to act now because the clock is ticking and the future won't wait. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you so much, Suma, for, uh, for setting that uh, ambitious agenda for all of us. Amina, your reactions? I was just going to say, said everything now, no reactions. I agree. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you, Asuma. This is, this is great that um, you lay out for us, uh, frankly, that the universal agenda that we shaped all those years ago is still uh, very relevant. Um, it's still a pathway that um, we've yet to stand up. Um, and if we had done it earlier, um, we certainly would have got much further, but we'd have been able to cope with what happened when suddenly COVID put a pause um, on the world. Um, I think, you know, when we moved from the Millennium Development Goals to the SDGs, the one thing we were looking for was a comprehensive response to sustainable development and that it was inclusive and that we were talking about the whole um, of, of, of development and not just a service piece um, uh, that had no roots, um, just about you know, we had maternal health, we had gender equality, but none of it rooted in the reality of the investments that were needed to be made. And that in the end, domestic resources are what makes, um, what makes it happen. But how do, we, how do we leverage that? How do we make that happen? Um, Asuma talked about the weakest link. And um, as uh, COVID has proved, really the, it, it opened up bare 
um, many of the issues that um, we already knew. I don't think that there is anything new that we're putting out there. Every time I've looked at the solutions to what we need to do now, there are variants of the same thing putting people work first, making sure it's inclusive, that it's sustainable, we're taking the environmental and climate um, investment seriously, uh, and that we're looking to find um, how to connect the tools, the different financial tools that we have to the scale and urgency of what is needed. Um, investing in our systems uh, so that, you know, your health system, your education system, basic services um, are sustainable. Um, and it was clear when we started the year that the decade we were off track. Um, and I think that here um, what we've got is an opportunity out of a crisis that has a human face um, we overnight were faced with something that was universal everybody was affected everywhere and so I think that you you say that right but it needed a global response and you know that I think was what we uh, suddenly found um, even more important we all focused on the health response how do we suppress uh, the transmission of um, COVID um, and overnight, we saw that in doing that, the treatment of that, we had side effects. And what were those side effects? The socioeconomic impact was hitting countries in the developing world long before it was hitting them up in uh, our developed countries. And so we had this wake up call to um, let's not have uh, what we've seen in the past um, that we take one or the other when we actually need to take both uh, tackling the suppression of the virus and um, responding to the the socioeconomic uh, crisis that we also had on our, on our hands so that global response the solidarity um, that underpinned Addis. I mean, Addis was a difficult negotiation. There was, I mean, we've been arguing many of the parts of the Addis Agreement. And as you said, the one big message in Addis was that this was a universal agenda and that we had to go from billions to trillions. It was the first time difficult conversations around ODA were had. Because on the one hand, people didn't want to uh, move away from what is essentially the commitment um, of developed countries to saying that, yes, the world mattered and we were going to have that hand to leverage um, the resources needed for development. But it was also a message to say, well, look, ODA is not enough. It's an integral part of this, but we need to find different ways to, to shore up the huge gaps that we were talking about. And so when um, uh, Mahmoud and, and uh, Maldina and co coined the, the billions to trillions, I think it was, you know, really to tell us about the scale. Um, so Addis, again, still as, as, as important as it ever was. Um, we did see the mobilization of resources uh, as, as, as COVID hit. We saw it in developed countries. Overnight, stimulus packages were being put together in the trillions, and they still are. So we know that the resources are there and available, but the, that global response was not coming globally. Um, what we were seeing was that in the, as best as they could, we were getting some pretty responsive um, uh, help to what I would say are categories of countries. Um, and that in itself was obviously not enough because the way we determine vulnerability really went past the categories of low-income countries. Middle-income countries are suddenly finding themselves in a really vulnerable situation. Um, and un unfortunately, even the billions were really difficult and are still, still difficult to address in many of our developing countries. Um, supply trains were breaking down. Again, was that a global response? No. We were looking at uh, you know, countries, again, looking inwardly and not outwardly. And I think to a degree, there was some um, sympathy that uh, once everyone is in trouble, you put the oxygen mask on yourself before you reach out to help others. 
But I think that that oxygen mask has been on long enough now. And, and that help that needs to come in a global response really does need to take up the solutions that are there and that we just need to push the ambition. Um, everything, whether it is a policy or a rule or a procedure, all of these things are, are man-made. And I think that, you know, we need to get to the table um, as uh, Asuma was saying, the response needs to be one um, that we come in partnership. And so let me say on my third sort of uh, going through this, the, the, the two, three reflections I had, the last reflection would be that, you know, credit to developing countries and academic institutions, experts who have pushed the bar, who have stretched um, the possibilities and taken those solutions to the table. Solutions they started rolling out in some countries and others that they've taken to MDBs, that they've taken to different um, uh, discussions like this today. Um, and you see with the envoys in Africa on the debt vulnerability, that whole initiative there and what they think needs to be put forward, working with ministers um, uh, in, in the UN uh, for, uh, for, for that response. Um, we, we need to amplify that. We need to find the solutions more immediately. The socioeconomic response on the ground, uh, where we are helping with um, understanding in countries uh, what we need to do both for the response now for, for health and for um, uh, the socioeconomic impact, but also on, on the opportunities of the crisis to recover better. And that recovery uh, will come at different times for different people, but are we ready for that um, if we can get through this? And, and I think that, that this is something that um, perhaps, uh, as uh, Suma said, um, time for impact on the ground um, and uh, more joined up thinking. And I think this is what we brought to the table when we sort of harvested the conversations of the G20, of the MDBs in the, in the spring meetings to say, can we galvanize around six issues that we need to respond to? And I think here, just to underscore what you have said um, with, uh, first of all, addressing vulnerability, I think we need to understand that much better than we do and not just to, in these uncharted waters, um, put it into different boxes. Uh, the scale at which this needs to happen, the urgency at which it needs to happen, addressing the risk, you know, and, and who determines that risk if you're trying to get a response to what is an urgent um, uh, uh, investment that needs to be made now region by region. Uh, a recovery that takes profit of this by being much more inclusive and sustainable. So the things that we've talked about on those agendas in the SDGs, um, how do we do that? Tailor-made solutions. Um, I would say that there were two things I was hearing from you, Suma. I'm, it's a good, I hope we will see, have this in this discussion right now. What is the partnership mix that we need country by country? It, it cannot, you know, one size fits all. Um, and in that partnership mix, what are the skill sets that we really need from the multilateral system to deploy in country in co-creating a sustainable solution? And these are uncharted waters. I think we should be humble enough to know um, that we don't have all the answers, as you said, from the MDBs. But certainly we have the um, convening uh, opportunities that we can bring private sector will be a big part of this. The credit to the private creditors will be a, a big part of it. So as we address the issues of financing for development now and, and beyond, external finance, the debt vulnerability, the global liquidity issues, our private creditors, um, and not to forget what we see um, with the illicit flows. It is opportunity to right the wrongs as we are trying to respond to, to what you've, um, you've said. Absolutely no reason not to get it done. 
Um, but it will, I will, I will say, um, finally, we need to deal with the intellectual, I would say, sometimes inertia. This, this not getting across and saying, right, let's go. Um, and that's going to require leadership. Leadership and a little bit of courage um, for you to know that what you're saying is right, but everybody's telling you it's wrong. So it, it, it's only going to be, as they say, um, as, as Mandela has often said, it's only going to be uh, impossible until it's done. And that's, that's the urgency that we need now is to get it done. Okay, thank you very much, Amina. Thank you. Let me uh, start with the first question and then we'll turn to the audience questions. Um, you know, when EBRD was founded, Suma, it was uh, created to bring capitalism to the transitional economies of Eastern Europe. And it's evolved enormously since then, but so has capitalism. Uh, and some would say capitalism is, a, you know, has had some existential issues of late, be it on green issues, social issues, and so on. As you look back at your time at EBRD, how, what have you learned as an institution about how capitalism can change the world and how it can contribute to the SDGs. And I'll ask Amina to also comment on this point, particularly in light of the UN's attempts to bring the private sector in to deliver the SDGs and what your reflections are on that experience. But I'll start with Suma. Thanks very much, Manushan. Uh, very nice to hear Amina's uh, reflections as well, which I really agree with. Um, I'm almost tempted to ask Eric Bergloff, our former chief economist at EBRD, <laughs> to answer this question, because he and I debated these sort of issues a lot uh, over the years. But let me have a go. I think it's true, EBRD is the um, one multilateral development bank that has an ideological um, constitution, and the constitution is very much about creating sustainable market economies, um, in uh, originally in uh, former communist countries, but now in non-communist countries. So it's all about creating the market economy. And for many years, that was seen as an end in its own right. So this is what it's about, and that's it. But actually, what we've learned over the years is that may have been the spirit of 1991, but the spirit of 2020 is we want systems, capitalist or non-capitalist, that deliver goods and services that we care about. That's the SDGs for me. So the outcomes of the SDGs and the mechanism, market mechanism, which I believe in, is a, uh, if you like, a, a way of delivering that. It's an instrument for delivering that. That meant we had to rethink what um, what we meant by a sustainable market economy, what we mean by capitalism in many ways. Um, it, it always reminds me of the old Monty Python joke, uh, what did the Romans ever do for us? Uh, where, you know, you could, I think if you go to many of the countries where we operate, people say, well, what did the market economy ever do for us? Particularly those who are excluded from the gains of the market economy. It led to a number of things. First of all, it led to, I think, a rethinking of what we mean by a market, a sustainable, effective market economy. 1991, um, I guess we'd have said it's about competitiveness. That's the thing we're trying to do, trying to make these economies more competitive. Well, we've learned a lot since then. I think we know, we in EBRD, we have what we call six transition qualities uh, for what uh, makes for a market economy. Uh, you know, we, we want one that's, of course, competitive. We want one that's also much more inclusive. Um, those who are locked out, uh, whether it's, um, you know, people in underserved regions, whether it's uh, cohorts of uh, the population, like young youth unemployment, very big issue, whether it's... Uh, female access to finance, uh, for female entrepreneurs, all those sorts of things. So inclusion matters. We want uh, a market economy that's green, 
That's a big part of our agenda too. We want one that is well-governed, and I don't just mean uh, good governance in governments. I also mean corporate governance in the private sector uh, as well, so well-governed. We want uh, economies that are resilient, resilient to shocks. And one of the things we've seen in this COVID-19 situation is that a lot of our economies have not been as resilient as we had hoped, but neither have they been very advanced economies either, been as resilient as we might have hoped. And we want more integration. And that's, of course, a big challenge going forward because actually one of the responses might be more localization and more regionalization, at least, and less uh, integration. So, but those are the six facets of what we think a modern market economy should be in order to deliver the Monty Python uh, effect, if you like, to deliver the SDGs. That is what, what, that's how we actually have to be thinking, uh, if you like, modern capitalism. On top of that, we really do think, to follow up on the Addis agenda, that it's got to be a system whereby the private sector finances, who will deliver the bulk of the finance that's required for the S- delivering the SDGs, whereby there is a better understanding, as Amina said about partnership, better understanding by many of the governments of what they need to do to attract the private sector finance into their economy. This is the whole investment climate, better governance agenda that Eric and I particularly pushed uh, in EBRD using our private sector knowledge to try and help governments rethink investment uh, climate decisions that would attract more uh, more financing into those countries. So I think there's a, a multiple sets of actions there, but I don't think we think any more of capitalism in the Washington consensus way of 1991. I think we've moved on. Uh, certainly in EBRD, I think we've moved on quite a bit, actually. Uh, and I, I think some of these six tenets that I uh, put forward, I think they will be challenged, as I say, going forward uh, by what's happened through this crisis. You, Manoush, you came on EBRD and you said talked about localization, specialization, and uh, digitalization. I think socialization, digitalization is your three themes. And I think those will be three of the biggest themes for EBRD's next five-year strategy as well. Uh, but trying at the end to have a modern version of capitalism that delivers the SDGs. Amina, your, your thoughts? Yeah, re- reshaping capitalism that happens bottom-up and not top-down. Um, I think for, for years it was a prescription that was good for everyone, right? And then we found that the whole globalization and capitalism didn't reach um, where we thought it would. And, and today we see um, billions of people disconnected um, for what was um, thought to be a good frame around which we would all prosper. Um, and I think that when we came to rethink that in terms of the roadmap, it's exactly what the SDGs tried to do was say they were basic rights to certain services, but that had to be fueled by a healthy growth and economy. Um, and that one today we needed to rethink about its inclusiveness, about its sustainability. And so every time I look um, at the, the, the sustainable development agenda, I think, well, everything's there. Um, the first reaction was that people sort of picked up a goal or two because those are the ones they liked. They didn't see the interconnection between that socio um, environmental um, and the important piece of the institutions and governance. And I think that that's been key uh, to trying to, it's never an attractive spend, but it's key to us understanding that without strong institutions, a healthy democracy, a rule of law, all of these things that we speak about um, will not hang together. Um, And so while I, I, I sort of think through the competitiveness of this. Yes, competitiveness, absolutely. If we can drive it towards innovation, if we can make it people-centered, if we are um, really thinking about um, 
the quality of inclusiveness because there's one thing to say we want an inclusive agenda everyone gets health care in the united states of america today do they we found out when COVID came along that some were less um, more, less resilient and, and others um, unfortunately um, it cost them their lives here so i, I think that the um, as we as we look at the uh, the market economy and we're thinking of reshaping um, how that should be uh, how we how we need to have that respond in Africa and Southeast Asia um, how are we going to change the way we look at leadership in that um, and the way that we bring in young people and innovation um, and the new digital economy that we are speaking about we saw very very quickly that when we were looking to see how to tackle what was a lockdown situation, a country where the informal economy was so huge, the migration of that informal economy, it was young people, um, informal businesses, that we were able to do that digitally onto platforms, which after COVID, it will only be up because we leapfrogged an opportunity there. Um, and so I think here as well, I would say that we are missing, um, we're missing women at the center of this. Um, and I don't say it because we haven't got gender parity or, you know, we're talking about inequalities. I'm talking about, um, you know, when we come to the table and we are missing as women at that table, shaping the economy, we are missing half of the opportunities that are available to the world. And it's not just for women issues. It's women's thinking in the whole of a response, a global response um, within the economy, within um, uh, within the solutions to what we're talking about now, is how do we bring that forward and, and how do we make sure that at the table this is happening? Um, and I don't think that we're really seeing that. We're seeing the, the words and we're seeing the intentions, but the thinking behind it, quite frankly, there's an incapacity of much of the leadership to even understand how to do that. Um, I, we have, you know, um, there's, there's a meeting coming up in a few uh, weeks time and it's about business. Um, and I looked at the, I think it was 16 business heads and there was one woman and everyone else was a man from the north on what was going to reshape the market and how we were bringing in the private sector. So I think there's a lot more that needs to happen um, as, we, as we look to see who's at the table. We, we spoke about the partnership mix, we spoke about the skill sets. This all has to happen um, with us thinking also about the, uh, the, the leadership and the qualities that um, women will bring to the table as well. Thank you. It's interesting, I was at an event recently where we were talking about what the post-COVID policy agenda is. And as people, you know, went through the various elements, universal access to healthcare, good jobs, safety nets that catch the most vulnerable. As this was all kind of accumulated, I thought, that sounds just like the SDGs. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think with the exception of the digitalization agenda, which I think the, the COVID crisis has accelerated a trend that was already there, many of the policy issues that we face in the world are, are there in the sustainable development goals. Let me turn to Eric, who uh, will uh, feed in some questions that we're getting from the audience. Well, thank you very much. I, I very much relish this opportunity to grill my former boss and on behalf <laughs> of the, the global community. But uh, the, the, there are um, a lot of questions uh, a very large audience. Maybe I, I'll start with um, uh, Consuelo Meneses. Uh, she's an LSE executive MSc student, and she it goes to several of the issues that you raised. Why did the UN um, 
involve the private sector in the implementation of the 2030 Agenda and the SDGs? Is it just for finance or are there any political push from the global north? Or is there a failure of multilateralism or is it a lack of capability of the state? How is conflict interest, the conflict of interest be, being addressed when you have these non-state actors, the transnational corporations that support the achievement of the SDGs? I think this is a question, I think, to both of you. How do you see, there are several questions in this spirit, you know, this, on the one hand, you know, why, what, why do we need the private sector to be involved and how do we deal with potential conflicts of interest? Okay, Sue, why don't you start and then we'll t- I'll turn okay. to Amina. I mean, uh, Amina will have the inside story of why the UN involved uh, the private sector, but I, I certainly felt it was high time we did. Um, uh, I'm a sort of veteran of the Millennium Development Goals era, and where, you know, if I go back to Monterey and the discussion there, um, we really didn't talk about private sector financing at all, and private sector was absent. Now, why is that? I think what has happened is the MDGs were a narrower subset of development goals, uh, first of all, and mainly focused on, I wouldn't say they're called, I wouldn't call them social outcomes, but outcomes where the state has a huge role to play. And because of that, I think grant aid, particularly focused on low-income countries, has a huge role to play. Scrolling forward, with the SDGs, we've got a much wider development agenda. I mean, there are a lot of them, the SDGs, but I think they, they actually describe for me more fully the, the characteristics of development, the, the development challenges across the piece, and they involve many more economic uh, issues than the old MDGs. That, I think, in itself means that the, just having the state, having uh, grant aid, low-income country agenda doesn't cut it. And that is why at Addis, I was so pleased, see, compared with Monterey, the private sector brought in fully. And the private sector... I think, has changed in its own attitudes. I think it sees itself now um, as having a role to play in uh, delivering the SDGs in a way it never did before. I think partly a leadership change in the private sector, I should say. Uh, I think there are many more people who are stimulated by this agenda as well. I think there's also the private sector leadership, I think, feels that it now has a direct voice in this agenda and it can get some of the things it wants done, even in terms of making profit as well. Uh, in terms of actually getting, as I was uh, describing earlier, governments to try and improve the investment climates and so on uh, through this process too. And I think the third thing is the private sector dif- discovered, in our case through EBID, that the number of things that they thought was impossible to do for the private sector are, are now possible to do. Uh, the green agenda, we might talk about that, I hope, later, is one possibility where the costs have come down and what was previously thought as unprofitable types of investments are now profitable. So the profit motive of the private sector, along with the development motive, I think they've actually converged in a number of areas, and that's made the private sector much more willing and engaged in this agenda than uh, 20 years ago. Amina? Yeah, I mean, when we first came to to having that four-year journey to design a more responsive development um, agenda, we said inclusive. Uh, the one thing that came across to us right at the beginning, we were talking past each other, the UN and the private sector, completely different language. We did not understand them and they certainly didn't understand us. We, we wouldn't even have them in our corridors. But over time, beyond the financing was to really look to see, okay, so what did this mean in terms of innovation? What kind of things were they going to bring to the table that for, for the scale and inclusiveness of um, the bottom line, and we all, all, everyone wants to make profit, that's not a problem. But we were saying not off the back of people, 
with people at the center, with the environment at the center, we began to challenge the business models. We began to have a much more serious conversation about how that collaboration would work. And I think that that's been perhaps the hook that we got that uh, five years later, we're actually seeing the private sector putting the energy into innovation, into how we can seed this, that we can bring partnerships and we can bring, uh, we can we can solve some of the gaps that we're seeing. Um, it, it's also showing us that, you know, the labor market and the private sector was not just a government issue um, and that we, we had to have that discussion. We had to see um, what we were doing with human rights, what we were doing with greening the economy. Um, and you see all of that in the SDGs. Uh, if you look at the SDGs, the first six are the unfinished business of the MDGs, where we owe that service to people, ending poverty, health, education. But if you then look at the other SDGs, um, from, from seven all the way um, to 15, you see that that's the crux of where we need to see the investments. And, and you just wouldn't be able to do that government alone or civil society. You need uh, business to be in that. Um, as, as we look at technology, cities, inclusive growth, uh, looking at our, our consumption and production patterns, this is all a, a, a collaboration with the private sector. Um, to the question of, you know, how do you keep everyone um, decent about this? How do, where are the checks and balances? Again, I'm going to go back to um, the strong institutions that we need. Um, and, and in democracies, if you don't have them, then you will have this failure um, of uh, uh, the, the market, uh, the, the business and um, uh, government where people are left out. Um, and I think that this is where we are, we are um, looking to see how uh, can we make sure that uh, the stakeholders are much more involved, not just in a consultation, but in shaping um, all the way through that process um, and the investments to um, a decent outcome. What are those results in our communities? Uh, the private sector is going to be an important part of this. Again, it's what is that partnership mix at the country? What is the government doing that it should be doing for the enabling environment? Who's picking up which responsibility? There is a division of labor in that partnership mix that you have in a country. And every country is different. Some are more mature than others. Um, others are dealing with a, a sub-regional um, uh, challenge, I would say, or opportunity. And so we, this has to be thought through, I think, um, much more than we've ever done before. And again, keep saying from the country up, we always say bottom up, okay, from the country up. I think this question comes quite natural from what you have said now. So Suma mentioned the greening of the economy. So from Zoe Larkin, she asks, the SDG seems to posit economic growth as a means of achieving them. For example, growing GDP to reduce <coughs> poverty. Do you believe we can successfully decouple economic growth from carbon emissions in the time frame needed to meet the Paris Agreement? And maybe, you know, several questions along the same lines. You know, what is the role of the multilateral system in achieving that um, or, or trying to decouple those? Well, shall I have a, a go first, uh, if you like? I mean, I think um, the EBRD has become uh, in the last, uh, well, since about 2005-06, actually, since the Glen Eagles G7 summit, I think uh, when we started soon after that to really invest in the green economic transition, as we call it, um, the, you know, in my view, the leading MDB now on, uh, on financing of that, uh, particularly through the private sector. I mean, last year, we had nearly 50% of all our investments in the green economy. Why is this happening? As I said earlier, I think partly because we all know this is the issue of our times. Uh, we all believe that. So we have reoriented ourselves, provided incentives to really 
push ahead on that. But secondly, I think, as I was trying to say earlier, I think some facts on the ground have changed. Uh, first of all, I think the technology has uh, improved enormously. Take the renewables area, for example. That's brought down costs extraordinarily and made it a much more investable proposition as well. Where we are now in this crisis is actually a sort of interesting point, inflection point. Talking to Gordon Brown recently when he appeared at EBRD, he said one of his regrets of the financial crisis time was not using that opportunity of putting a lot of funds in as rescue packages to, if you like, tilt to green, to use it, to do so. Um, so we have been trying, and I think the other MDBs too, to try and not lose that opportunity this time, to actually use the stimulus packages, the leverage that we have at this moment, to try and help, well, in our case, companies, particularly but governments also through policy work, to tilt to green. And so in the packages we're putting together for clients, you'll see uh, quite a push on that as well. I think really, for example, by improving environmental standards at the same time as providing liquidity as well, uh, and we're looking for low-carbon solutions as well, I think, uh, in investment in infrastructure too. But there is a risk during this period. You know, I'm sitting here in Oxford. Um, I've probably got the cleanest emissions in this city for God knows how long because government decided to suppress economic growth to deal with the health uh, crisis. I don't want that to result in a thinking that actually there is really a very sharp trade-off between growth and a good environmental, sustainable economy. I do believe there's a clean growth path, but actually we in the MDBs, we've got to seek that out. And that's what we've been trying to do. Uh, and I think we've got to use this opportunity to show that there are investments which will be good for growth, but also good for the environment. And I think we've, we mustn't lose that uh, element as well. We've got to attract more financing into this area too. And again, the private sector financing that I spoke of earlier is very important. Uh, trying to get more sovereign wealth funds, uh, pension funds to come in with us to finance particularly the green agenda. That, I think, has to be the new way forward. In the next few weeks, you'll get the new green economy transition, five-year approach from EBRD. My, my successor will take that forward, but it will be a very, very ambitious uh, approach, I think. Uh, having already achieved nearly 50% of our investments so far, we need to go much, much further, for sure. Any, any reflections? Sorry, I would, I would just say that, you know, um, what Addis is to finance, the Paris Agreement is to our survival. Um, and I think that this is critical. The science is telling us we cannot live in a world um, that, is, uh, that is more than a 1.5 degree. Uh, currently, we're over three degrees with, the, with, um, with the, the proposals that have been made. And I think here again, there are many, many pathways that have shown us that we can make this um, possible and, and that, you know, turn out, as they say, on the right side of history um, in growth being clean and being green. Um, the jobs, the incentives for jobs, the in incentives for energy transitions, um, the role that young people in their tomorrow now will play in the consumption patterns that we have and therefore address a lot of the production that we're seeing today that it is not, that is not green. I think the bottom line will be how we have that discussion across each country and region, looking at those the large emitters, because many of them are also developing countries, to find the just, just transitions and the role of each partner in that. Um, I think that this has been 
um, we've started it with, with the steps towards, um, in the climate summit that we have, st steps towards transparency. Uh, the private sector is joining that and we can see that happening. In the end, it's going to mean an end to fossil fuels. We all know that. Um, but how we do that um, and the urgency which we need to put that uh, forward, I would come back to again saying COVID has shown us that in the stimulus packages, in the recovery, that it doesn't have to be either or. It can be that you start laying those foundations and those investments and negotiating them green. Um, and, and, and that's what I think is um, has to be made clearer to people that the implications of not doing so, climate change hasn't been put on pause. It's accelerating. And so we need to make sure that as we look at these stimulus packages, as we look at the financing that comes in, that we try to condition that um, to a greener and cleaner world. And, and, and that's feasible. Um, it is the only pathway that, that will, will ensure sustainability. I'll ask, uh, two, I think, two last questions. So, so I bunch them together. And, and one relates very directly to what you were talking about now, both of you. It's from Fatima Diliore, who's a banker from London. And the question is, is really about the whole issue of, yeah, we have seen green bond financing, we're now trying to do SDG bond financing. Fatima's concern is that there's a lot of greenwashing going on. How do we get the balance right between getting sufficient funding in, making sure that those who commit funds know that it will actually go to what it's intended to go to. And, uh, and the second question, which I can't avoid asking, is from uh, Ashley Hodges, an LSE alum, alumna, uh, who is also CEO of Access Ed NGO. It's a long question, but the basic question is, what is the role of universities, since you are at the university? What is the role of universities in, in um, uh, bringing forward the um, sustainable development goals and uh, you know particularly on the side she, her focus is very much on inequality and i guess access to education hey <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're, we're, go ahead <laughs> well i mean on, on greenwashing um i mean this is uh very important because uh we're only as good as our reputation so if uh if it is shown that you know that what ebid or other multilaterals are doing actually isn't really what we what it says on the tin then we're in deep trouble. So the way we go about this, Fatima, is really have extremely strong internal governance. So the people who are putting together the, the projects and the investments and so on are not marking their own homework. There's another set of people within EBRD. It's almost like the American Constitution checks and balances, you know. So we have another set of people in EBRD who are actually have to uh, be convinced. And, uh, of course, the president has the ultimate say in this. Uh, that this does pass the test. Um, it's quite complicated and actually it has some transaction costs internally, but it does actually at the end of the day certify that we're doing this. And then there's, there's peer review as well. So we're not doing this on our own internally. We have uh, external uh, NGOs and others as well as other MDBs who have to agree the criteria as well. Uh, and there's lots of work going on on standardizing green criteria as well, taxonomy as well going forward. So I think there's a lot of peer pressure and internal pressure to make sure we get this right. Uh, and I'm confident we're doing that, actually, doing very well on that. On the um, universities, I mean, you know, I think universities um, have a great role. I mean, here we are, with the LSE. Manoush could probably answer this question better than me. 
but uh, I have within my own household a, a couple of university professors. So I'm under constant pressure from uh, the university sector, I feel, to make sure that we are achieving the SDG goals. But seriously, I think um, it's really important uh, in the countries of operation where we work that we talk to universities, whether we finance them or not, and we don't really in EBRD finance universities, but I make it a point of getting out to these uh, universities, talking to students about the agenda, about what is the agenda about, how should it be achieved, and actually I want to hear their opinion. So it's not a one-way, you know, send sort of thing. I want to receive their opinions about what works and what stimulates them and what keeps them interested in this agenda, and I want them to challenge as well. It's fundamentally important for our, uh, us as we go forward as an institution for people in universities through their research work, through their teaching, but also through workshops and seminars like this to challenge us as well. So they have a huge part to play, I think, in achieving the SDGs. Namina. Yeah, yeah. Th- thank you. I mean, uh, as a Minister of Environment, one of the biggest uh, challenges I had was, you know, how to develop pipelines and, and bring in partners that we were not greenwashing. And we, we produced the first um, domestic green bond. And that was really tough. And, and we had um, a group of people who were who came in um, to really uh, to, to, to challenge us to that with together with the stock exchange. And the checks and balances that were put in there to what was green and what was not green, I think were very helpful for us as we developed our pipeline. Um, the, 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 the principles of the Global Compact um, for investing, the mandatory reporting of the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, all these are really helpful in making sure that there's transparency and accountability into what your money is being invested in. So that while you are signing up to the principles, you're not then through the back door investing in brown. And I think that opening up of transparency has really helped us to, to check what these, um, uh, the, the bonds, both by the green or SDG, really good initiatives and instruments, but absolutely right. We, we, need, to, we need to make sure that we are not um, greenwashing. It would be um, for us the opportunity of um, enhancing our NDCs, the nationally determined contributions, should provide pipelines that are going to um, address um, uh, much of the investments that will go into countries to try to get to 1.5 degrees. And so here, again, the criteria, um, the, 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 uh, the mandatory reporting uh, from countries, from businesses is going to, to go a long way in helping us. Um, on the issue of the universities, I mean, it's critical. This is where um, the minds of uh, tomorrow will be leading. Um, and I think if we're not having that interaction right now um, in the convening space that we should bring in more academia. I think we will be, um, you know, less prepared for the changes that need to happen. What COVID has shown us is that tomorrow is not ever going to be the same as, um, you know, before COVID struck. It's going to be very different. Um, It is uncharted waters. And if it isn't very different, then we're not going to survive it. Um, And I think that here, um, uh, universities are fertile ground for us really to stretch the ambition um, to really not people say think out of the box quite frankly we have to knock it out of the ballpark things have to be turned on their heads and where do you get that done if not in universities where you know you you have the sky's the limit for that thinking so it's to bring that thinking into places uh, institutions like these that have long perhaps um become a little comfortable with the tools of 1945 and need to have tools for 2021 and beyond. Um, and I think this is where universities and young minds um, can help us uh, to, to 
to get the right responses that we're going to need and to test that. And I hope that in the coming weeks and months, as we put up a couple of round tables to discuss this, we are bringing in um, our academics, we are bringing in young people from universities uh, to come and challenge us. Um, we're always talking about bringing people in for consultations um, and engaging, but I think now we have to be co-creators of the world that we certainly need uh, beyond COVID. We have a roadmap. I think that the, uh, the SDGs and the Addis Ababa Agreement are as relevant, if not more, today than they have ever been. Um, what we haven't done is been able to lift it um, to the scale and the response that's needed. And I think that universities are going to have a key role to play um, in this. Eric, are you going to do any more questions or are you going to hand back to me? I'm going to hand it back to you. So. Okay, very good. Thank you, Eric. Uh, let me just ask a final question to both of you. We are at a time when support for a rules-based international system is probably weaker than it's been, uh, you know, since, uh, since the World War, since the creation of what we currently think of as the international system. Um, and many of the key shareholders in the international system uh, have, uh, have massively diminished their support for it, particularly the United States, but, but other, many other parts of the world are also looking inwards. Where do you think global political leadership will come from in a world that is increasingly fragmented? And what do multilateral organizations and the United Nations, which is you know, the sort of the ultimate uh, and the sort of first among the multilateral institutions. How can you achieve your objectives in this world of political fragmentation? And maybe I'll start with Amina and then turn to Suma. Well, the UN's just turned 75, and this is a big question that we have had out there, and we've been asking these questions to young people and stakeholders um, of what they really want to see of the UN uh, beyond. And I think one thing is quite clear, we've come to that moment where, as in 1945, the world wars created the opportunity for us to pivot and, and see the urgency of no war again, we the people, we've come to that point yet again. Um, and I think that here, we can see that multilateralism, as you said, has become fragmented, everybody's looking inwards, uh, leadership is dysfunctional, and the core of what we have it here. Um, and I think that what we have to have are those discussions with leaders to show the implications um, of non-engagement, um, of not taking the responsibilities that they must. Um, I don't think we can just you know, say that, well, they're going their different ways. The UN convenes to have those discussions. What we need to do is to convene to have perhaps many more uncomfortable discussions um, and to be less diplomatic about it, as I will probably be now. But I mean, <laughs> it, it really is about us having, as the SG has said more recently, um, a networked multilateralism, stakeholders um, defining uh, that multilateralism, this convening space. What if, if today we, had to, we decide you scrap the UN, I'm pretty sure we're gonna recreate it tomorrow. The convening space of the global town hall is essential for a world that is so connected and that strives to find peace for the majority. And it's not there yet. And, and so I think the way we have structured what we have today must change. Um, we, we cannot operate, as I said, with tools or with stakeholders that remain a reflection of what was. It needs to be a of a reflection of what is and could be. Um, and, and that's where I think that um, 
again, uh, the demand uh, for, for that to happen. We need to hear it. Um, I, I have to say that having come from civil society at one time in my life, I see that voice much quieter than it used to be. Mm. Um, and I think it needs to be so much stronger. Maybe it's the way in which we um, advocate and, and protest. We've seen just recently works, get on the street, things happen. Um, and I think that, you know, the world needs to, especially young people need to turn and, and look at the, um, the, the multilateral system and say, you know, you cannot continue like this. We need it, um, but it needs to look this way. And, and that's the conversation that the UN is now having rather than to do it within our halls is to reach out and say, what is that? Um, what, is a, what is it that, that you'd like to see in the UN, in the multilateral system um, that will help keep us together? Um, in the transition that we must make in, into a much more sustainable and inclusive world. Suma? Well, it's a really, just a big question, isn't it? I mean, I think um, in my eight years, the high point, I would say, of global leadership um, of the system uh, for development was 2015. There was uh, ADIS, uh, Financing for Development, there was the adoption of the SDGs, and then it was the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. And in the last four or five years, that leadership has ebbed away. Um, and that's very clear. Why is that important? Because actually what we need is a shared vision for what multilateralism can deliver, what the system as a whole can deliver, going back to my point about different skill sets, complements and substitutes. And that shared you know, vision must come with some global leadership. You can't just leave it to the managements of the various multilateral institutions to come up with that. Now, I think the UN Secretary General, um, you know, is trying to provide that. And I think there are some other leaders um, in advanced countries, I would say Chancellor Merkel or Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, people like that who perform very well, uh, interestingly, both uh, female leaders. And I think they are coming to the fore. But as I leave the EBRD, where do I see that leadership coming from? Frankly, I see it coming from the emerging markets recipient countries. I see far greater leadership from them than I do from the G7 or G20 these days on these issues. And it is a bottom-up type of leadership, as Amina says. It is about them working out what works in their countries and talking about partnerships to other countries. The strongest champions of EBRD's potential expansion to sub-Saharan Africa have been the recipient countries. You know, very interesting, I think, actually as a take on what's happening to the system. They don't have enough shareholdings. They don't have enough voice because of that. But actually, they have a lot more to say that's of real relevance and interest today and what we need to do. So the more we can give that voice uh, encouragement, foster it, the better. And I hope well, that not before too long we'll see a resurgence maybe because of civil society pressure, because of things changing after COVID, that also that the major uh, countries that with the power, the money, will also come back and provide uh, a resurgent shared vision. At least that's my hope. Let's a follow-up on that. Um, you both implied uh, that you needed to look for leadership elsewhere. Um, you know, we all know that the countries that benefit the most from a rules-based international order are small and medium-sized countries because big countries can use their power to get what they need, uh, whereas small and medium-sized countries rely more on rules and law and other things in the international system. How can one get the small and medium-sized countries to provide more of that leadership, including financing uh, to the international system, and also 
to what extent are non-state actors going to become more important? I think, Amina, you alluded to this as well. Uh, private sector, civil society, other, other important stakeholders in the international system. And how can one tap into the energy of those non-state actors to preserve a rules-based order? Uh, maybe Amina first and then and then Sue. Yeah, when I think from the perspective of my country and what would that take uh, for us to to really shape a response from our governments um, from from the country to to make it a multi-stakeholder people um, response. Um, I'm not sure that the governance structures as they are modeled today help us. Um, in many of these small and medium um, uh, countries that you see, um, the, the real difficulty is that there, there's a contradiction between an economy that must grow over time because you, you, the infrastructure, the services, the capacities, education, these are all not quick fixes. Um, so you need investment over time and you will do it right, it'll, you'll see the growth. But the structures that help to govern that are incredibly short term. Um, uh, and so you're seeing the cycles and changing of leaderships and governance um, that don't help us to have that longer term um, environment and, and investments and, and returns on, on, on what we do. So I struggle with um, looking at an, at, at, a, at an election cycle, um, at the institutions of a democracy, um, which all have to be invested in and nurtured at the same time we're trying to grow. Um, and, to, and to make that, that, that happen. And so here again, that's why I think the global response is that, you know, you need to find people investing in um, some of the more short-term challenges that we have so that the long-term ambitions um, will, will come, come to realization. Um, and that, that needs a convening. And I'm not sure that all the time we have the right people at the table for sustainable development. Um, now we're bringing, the, what, did we, what did we do a few weeks ago? We brought heads of state and government to speak about financing in the era of COVID and beyond for sustainable development. And I think we got an incredible turnout. Um, to continue that discussion, it's not the heads of state and government. What you need are the ministers of finance because they really need to, you know, I mean, they're the players that will determine the, the type of growth that we have. Uh, um, but it, yet, you will see that many will say, well, maybe you, you should just have the Minister of Development and Planning. Um, it's not a finance minister's meeting now. This is about, you know, development and planning. It's not. It's about the two. So I think changing the way, the narrative and changing the way we uh, think about this and who the players are at the table makes it even more urgent that you are really looking at the stakeholder. Um, and, you know, who's going to do what, the division of labor, um, and that there isn't a monopoly um, on that knowledge, on that, uh, uh, on that implementation, as we'd say. We have the policies, we know what, what, uh, what it is that we need to do, and we've got great tools, um, but we haven't yet been able to do this implementation. And I think the implementation struggles with um, uh, embedding itself in the reality of many countries, and we have to do that, because otherwise it, it, it just won't happen. Um, we will continue to say, um, you know, that the governance is not right or the leadership is not right. But actually, we've set it up to fail and we need to find a little bit more flexibility um, and to say that, you know, maybe this model for a democracy in a country is not working. And how can we actually look at that to ensure that it puts people at the center, 
that um, it is uh, adhering to people's rights um, and, and, and at the same time getting inclusive growth. Okay. Suma, final word well, from you. You have asked the most impossible question, Manish. Uh, <laughs> you really have. Um, because, frankly, if we wait for formal governance structures to change, so the voice of those who are left out, well, we're waiting for our grandchildren's lifetime, never mind our own. Uh, it'll take far too long. Um, so we've got to find ways and techniques which get that voice of the others who don't have the say, the small and medium-sized countries, out into the open. Frankly, I think the United Nations is probably the best place to do so. I think this actually, for me, is a chance to really rejuvenate the role, central role of the United Nations in this debate. I think the Secretary General is going about it the right way. What we need to hear is more of those people speaking at um, these conferences and seminars and so on, and, and hoping that the leaders from richer countries are listening. And secondly, what we need, I think, also is the younger people in richer countries making the this sort of debate an electoral issue. That's when people listen in these countries. Um, you know, at the moment, I fear it'll be a, we get to 2025, 26, four years away from 2030, and we realize we're off track. That's when it becomes an important issue in the advanced uh, economies. Until then, it doesn't, because it's not electorally interesting. Um, but we need younger people to make it interesting right now just as they're doing, thank God they're doing with Black Lives Matter and others, issues like this, where they're really pushing these agendas forward. Uh, they, they can be the accompaniments, if you like, to the leaders of the smaller emerging markets, uh, so their voice is magnified in this debate. That's what I'm looking for. We certainly saw that in the Make Poverty History debate, where young people Absolutely. really elevated development onto the global agenda. It's time to wrap up. Uh, thank you, uh, Suma, for sharing with your reflections on uh, on uh, on your time at the uh, at the EBRD, particularly reminding us of the universality of these issues, the lack of silver bullets, but also the fact that there's some very good ideas out there on how financing for development could be different and better. And Amina for uh, reminding us of the centrality of the SDGs and how we can approach their delivery in new and different ways in the post-COVID world. I also wanted to thank our audience. Uh, thank you all for joining us from all over the world. And also to encourage you to uh, join us on Thursday, the 2nd of July for the launch of the Merriam Forum which we're hosting at the LSE. Uh, the opening event uh, will be around defeating COVID everywhere, what needs to be done now. And we'll have Gordon Brown, Jumin and myself doing the opening plenary, but then parallel sessions for every region of the world and also for all the big global issues ranging from state fragility to financing, migration, populism and industrial policy. Please join us if you go to the LSE Public Events website, you'll find all the details to be able to register. It's exactly these kind of global town halls that are essential for building the consensus for a better world. Thank you all for joining and thank you especially to our speakers.